This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. You can't have plant-based breakfast without a plant-based egg. You can get started with a free sample. Just head to ju.st slash hrn. This week on Meet and 3, we celebrate Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month with an episode about memory. I've always read and sort of approached cookbooks for more than the recipes. To me, they are full of narrative content and narrative value. So Malama Aina basically means to take care of the land. For us as Hawaiians, it's taking care of our older sibling. But I do remember like definitely feeling like self-conscious about it, like being the only one who kind of wasn't eating a sandwich and like didn't have a bag of goldfish or Lunchables. Listen to Meet and 3 wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Akiko Tema, a food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi ramen izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And my guest today is Philip Hopper, the brewmaster and managing director of Kinoshita Shuzo in Kyoto, which has 880 years of history, making wonderful sake. Philip has been working in the sake industry in Japan for the last 30 years. In 2007, he became the first non-Japanese brewmaster in Japan at Kinoshita Shuzo. Nowadays, there are more non-Japanese workers in the sake industry, but back then, it was a shockingly novel event. Philip has proven his remarkable talent, and his outstanding product products have won many awards. And also, he has been inspiring the sake industry with the refreshing new ideas, like sake that is made to be drunk on the rocks. So today, we'll discuss how Philip ended up living in Japan and eventually becoming a brewmaster, and his unique style of sake making, his innovative sake making philosophy, and much, much more. But quickly, before we start, Japan is available on the Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitch, and Spotify as a podcast. So, so please go to iTunes, Stitch, and Spotify, whichever you listen to, and subscribe to Japan Eats. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now, let's start a conversation with Philip Harper. Hello, Philip. Welcome to the show. Hello, Akiko. Thank you for having me. Hey, so uh, we have a lot to talk about. So uh, f- uh, first of all, where are you from and what did you eat when you grew up? Uh, well, I'm from the UK and uh, I gr- grew up in the country in uh, Cornwall, which is way down in the southwest. Um, so it was uh, there was nothing particularly spectacular about our, um, our dinner table, I don't think. I think probably my mother was a fairly adventurous cook for her generation, so um, we had the uh, Indian food and Thai food and things on the table as well. And my mm. father was a, a, a really keen gardener, so we always had lots of fresh fruit and, and vegetables to, to eat. Mm. And uh, I... we had about like six six or seven different kinds of fruit growing in the garden always. So there was always a uh, a competition with my sisters to get the, 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 the best tasting strawberry or gooseberry or plum or whatever. And so... 
um, thinking about it now, I kind of had an early training in thinking about the balance between sweetness and acidity, trying to find the um, the, the right point between get, eating something that was too sour and something that was uh, past its best. Right. Wow, that's the best type of training. <laughs> um, okay, and uh, so I heard that you went to uh, Oxford University, and yeah. after graduation in 1988, you went to Japan on the JET program, yeah. uh, which is the government-sponsored program to invite young foreigners to invite, I mean, to Japan to teach English. So yeah, how did yeah, so how did you become interested in Japan in the first place and decided to apply for the JET program? Well, to be honest, I, I didn't have any specific in, interest in Japan as such. Um, I, I did uh, literature and languages at university, so I was always interested in languages. Um, and so uh, my, I, my degree was in English and German literature and German language. So I, I spent a, a year living in what was then West Germany as part of my university course. Um, and uh, I had no concrete ideas about careers that I wanted to do. I just knew that I wanted to live overseas again. Um, so in my final year, I applied for a job in an East German university. And uh, a university friend um, was uh, in Japan on the JET program in the first year of that program. So I heard about that and heard that you could go to Japan and, and uh uh, pay the rent by um, by teaching English there. And so kind of uh, just on a whim, really, I, I also applied for the job in Japan and got the phone call from Japan about two weeks before I got the phone call from East Germany. Otherwise, um, I would probably have been in East Germany when the Berlin Wall came down, and that would have been interesting too. <laughs> wow. So this is what we interesting about life, right? You never know what happens. It's very really, exciting. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I when when I first came to Japan, um, I was sent to Osaka City, um, and uh, when when I received the information about that, that was the first time I'd ever heard of Osaka. I had no idea where it was. I really knew nothing about um, Japan or or Japanese culture or geography or food for that matter. Mm, obviously, and I I read uh, your past interview, and the the first Japanese food you had was uh, on the airplane to Tokyo. So. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that is very refreshingly new to to Japan. Um, yeah. So, and how did you become interested in Japanese sake, considering all those, you know, the path you took to Japan? Well, you know, I was always a fairly enthusiastic drinker of beer and wine, and basically whatever came along. So, uh, before I came to Japan, I I knew of the existence of sake. I think. Um, I think people in the UK now are much more familiar with um, Japanese culture than um, than they were 30 years ago. But even then, I think people knew the, the, the name of this alcoholic drink in Japan called sake. And so I, I, I knew there was this drink um, made from rice. Um, and just in the, in the normal way of things, I was keen to drink, drink that I, in the same way that I was... Uh, uh, always pretty much keen to drink anything else, but that was that was all the knowledge. I didn't know anything about it. Mm, okay, but uh, what was like uh, like the moment? Like, wow, this is something special. Did you have that like a sake moment? Well, when when I when I first arrived, I mean, I I started, you know, I drank whatever sake was there. 
um, and and that was fine. And uh, then at at, uh, the, at I was working at uh, public high schools, and uh, in Japan, you you commonly there are there are sort of drink drinking parties for colleagues and things, um, and there would always be sake at those things as well. And I dr- I drank that with without complaint for the f- first few months and so on. Um, and then I became friends with um, a Japanese man who worked in the the school office. Uh, we started talking about music, and we kind of liked the same kinds of music. And the conversation got to sake, and uh, he was saying, you know, that hot stuff that they they serve at the uh, at the school bashes, that that's okay, but there's much better sake. And uh, he took me out to drink um, in Osaka, and uh, up until then, I thought that sake was something that you automatically drank hot. Um, and he he took me out, and we were served uh, cold sake in wine glasses, which was a um, a very uh, refreshing experience at that time. I'd never heard of sake being drunk cold, um, and so you know the 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 real enthusiasm for sake the the whole up up until then I was just a, a casual drinker really, um, and that's when it really changed direction for me. Mm. Probably probably only a couple of months after I got to Japan. Mm, wow. I mean, you're lucky that you're in Osaka because Osaka is known for amazing food culture and I'm sure yeah, there's so many good sake too. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, was, it was a great place to learn about um, food and drink, certainly. Mm, right. And after you taught English on the JET, JET program, you decided to stay in Japan, right? Yeah. After two years. So mm-hmm. why did you decide to stay in Japan? Well, um, so w- when I came to Japan, I, I was... I didn't really have any concrete plans about what I was going to do. Um, and I think probably if you'd asked me before I arrived, I would have I would have told you that I expected to be here probably not less than two years and not more than five. Um, but the, there, were, there, was no, there was no real concrete plans. And then I got really, really hooked on, on sake. I was really interested in sake. Um, and... Um, after two years on the JET program, I, mean, I really enjoyed my time on the JET program, and I really enjoyed the the experience of teaching in Japanese high schools. But I'd never intended to be a a teacher as a profession, so um, I was sort of two years felt like a, about enough of that. And I was already at that point thinking that it would be interesting if I could find some kind of sake related work. And um, so when when two years on the JET program was finished, um. I started working in a in a sake bar, but you can't get a you can't get a visa to do that. So um, I I got a visa to uh, teach in a private language school in the day. So I do that in the days and then go and work in this um, in the sake bar in the evenings. Mm, wow. Okay. And uh, so then eventually, uh, I heard that you started your career in the sake industry at uh, Umenoyado Brewery. In yeah. Nara Prefecture in 1991. So, how did you get a job at the sake brewery? Um, well, this um, this this Japanese friend of mine, this this guy from the school office. Um, there was there was him and uh, another friend of his. These these two Japanese guys, they'd been in a, a blues band in junior high school together, um, and the three of us would go go to concerts and go out drinking together and stuff, and. Um, um, this first friend, um, when I started, the year I started working in the sake bar, um, he gave up his job as a in the school office, which is a, a civil service job with guaranteed pensions and stuff. He gave that up to become a, a sake brewer in 
Umenayado, which was one of our favorite breweries at that time. And so while I was working at the um, at the sake bar uh, on days off and, and New Year, I would go out and hang out there. Um, and uh, I thought I was helping out with work. I was probably just getting in the way. Um, and so, you know, I saw I saw what the work was like and I was sort of really fascinated by the whole brewing process. And it was a very strange um, manpower system in those days. It was this, this um, old system of guilds which had been in place um, for centuries in Japan, and which was kind of coming into in its twilight years then. And this friend of mine, I mean, he said, you should come and, and make sake as well instead of selling it. And um, at the beginning, I kind of laughed it off as a joke. But we always heard in those days about this sort of oncoming crisis in manpower and traditional breweries. And I found out pretty quickly that I wasn't very good at, at customer service either. And so um, a year later, I joined uh, Umeneado where this, where this friend of mine had joined a year before. And the, the third friend, the other friend in this trio of um, the three of us who had done all this drinking together, he, he, he also gave up his job and went to join a brewery in Chiga Prefecture. And so all three of us gave up our, our normal jobs and uh, became sake brewers. And uh, all of us have been brewing ever since, which is almost 30 years now. Um, what was the biggest challenge in working in the tech industry as a non-Japanese person back then? Because the uh, industry used to have only Japanese male workers, and yeah. uh, it must have been very challenging for you. Yeah, well, in, so it was my third year in Japan, and I could, I could get by in sort of normal conversational Japanese. But obviously, sake brewery, brewery Japanese is uh, obviously um, a lot more specialized. Um, so there were obviously um, lots of uh, uh, technical terms that, that had to be remembered. And my colleagues, almost all of them, they came from the, the Tajima region of Japan, um, which is not that far from Osaka, but they had very strong accents. I really struggled with the regional accents um, all the time <laughs> I worked with those guys. Um, but the, I mean, the most, I mean, the most exhausting thing about it, I mean, although obviously, you know, working in a, in a, uh, a, f a foreign language is pretty it can be pretty tiring but i mean i was already conversationally fluent after three three years so it wasn't so much the language stuff as um just the uh the the level of physical labor in 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 those days the the brewers who were uh, all usually farmers they would um work as a team and they they would leave their rice fields after the rice harvest finished in autumn and then live in the brewery through the winter months and do the brewing and then go home to their families in spring. So the whole system was set up um, with, without days off because if you took days off, it just meant um, another day before you got back to see your family. And also because there were no, no days off in between, it meant a shorter season, which meant that the, the brewery owners had less, uh, obviously, less um, salary to pay. So working working every day from autumn to spring was like completely accepted part of um, brewery life in those days, and they were pretty long days. So a slow day would be starting at six in, at six o'clock in the morning, um, and sake brewing is is all about microorganisms, and those those guys move twenty four hours a day. So um, work doesn't always necessarily stop um, at night either. So there were really long, long days and and lots of really heavy, heavy physical labour. So I was like, like totally exhausted through through the entire um, first winter, really. 
but uh, <laughs> as, as I say, I mean, not, although, although I mean, the language problems were obviously um, uh, extreme for me because I was not a native Japanese speaker, but um, uh, most, of, most of the burdens were not about being um, uh, non-Japanese. They were just about the immense workload um, mm. in, in traditional breweries in those days. Right. But I would imagine if you spend like 200 days together, almost like, you know, the sports team, I'm sure you built some uh, good friendship, like uh, Maradui kind of closeness to each other, right? Yeah, well, in, it, it's a, it was a very intense um, way of living. I mean, I, I, I actually um, rented a house not far from the brewery, so um, I didn't sleep at the brewery every day, only, only when I was sort of, um, on duty for the graveyard shift. Um, but I was still eating three three meals a day with my colleagues, and and the in the in the old system where where everyone came from the same village in the country, um, they would all live in the brewery and not just eat three meals a day, but apart from the master brewer, um, everyone else would sleep in the same room as well. Um, wow. And so you know it was it was very intense, and and uh, if you if you got fractures in um, human relationships if you got got um, that kind of if you got really problems that way then um things could go downhill really really quickly so there was a, a real it was a very it was a very japanese thing to emphasize harmony um amongst uh, working groups but i mean it was as a matter of practical necessity um if people didn't manage that then things could get ugly really quickly in the sort of intense setting of a, a traditional sake brewery and of course, mm. these these guys, the guys I was working with, they were they were all the generation that went through the war, um, and uh, the when when they grew up, um, the 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 great enemies were uh, America and the UK, and they they had learnt uh, lots of stuff about what an evil country the UK is. Um, <laughs> some 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 of it some of it true, and some of it not so true. But you can imagine they they weren't all that pleased at the idea of having a um, a foreign co-worker hoisted on them. They they told me this sort of several months in that they'd been really uh, apprehensive about having a foreigner on the team. Um, but mm. as you kind of, you kind of said, it's a bit like a sports team, you know. And after eating three meals a day together for for several months, they saw that this guy maybe made a, as much mistakes as the next person, but was willing to do what he could to to, to share his uh, uh, part of the workload, and so. Um, it's it, it stopped mattering so much after a while. I, mean, I think it was probably pretty much of a culture shock for those guys from their generation having a a young British guy suddenly in their in their team. But uh, after a while, it just stops. Doesn't doesn't really mm. matter anymore. Right. Well, it sounds like that's the most intensive uh, cultural training course possible. <laughs> yeah, and, the <laughs> and you very, survived very, a very traditional sort of um, style of of Japanese culture as well, because you know these people were from a from very rural um, background, from a very um, rural part of Japan, and and so like food culture and stuff was like a very very traditional Japanese home cooking and stuff. So mm. in in some ways, I I've probably seen a a kind of older version of of Japan than a lot of Japanese people of my age ever have. <laughs> right, and you're okay with the food that there that was served. Yeah, well, I mean, I'd never eaten Japanese food until I came here, but I've always enjoyed eating different different foods. So I, I never, I mean, there were, there were there were Japanese foods that took a bit of getting used to, but I I, I never really found it um, really unpleasant or difficult. 
Um, and mm. and in those days, the, there was always um, a member of the brewing team would also um, be the cook. Um, and there was a, a, a lady who came with the brewers and did all the cooking. So it was really good, um, freshly cooked Japanese home cooking and uh yeah it was it was it was really good food so i i had no trouble with that at all mm, right so uh so what did you learn at the uh, um umenoyado brewery well i mean i in my first year they it, it's a small brewery so in small breweries you have to do bits and pieces of everything but my my main job in the first year was i was in, put in charge of um rice polishing which is the the first step of of sake brewing and uh, in my in my second year, I was put in charge of uh, washing the rice and steaming the rice, which is the next stage. And uh, I sort of was then over the years there, I, I was put in charge of all the various stages of sake brewing. So I spent a year, a couple of years, uh, making this weird stuff called koji, which is a, a very key part of the the sake brewing system. Um, I, I was put in charge of the the making the yeast starter for a couple of years. Um, and so I, I I was in charge of every step of the of the brewing system of the brewing process over over the years, which sounds kind of logical and normal, but um, it, it turns out it's actually quite unusual. I, I don't think I've ever met another brewer who has been in charge of every stage of the brewing process. Um, so I was lucky to be able to do that, and it's it certainly I think it's been very important for my career since that I I have been in charge of every stage of the process myself before mm, right so you learned tremendously culturally and technically at the umenoyado brewery so you got so lucky um all right so we'll take a quick break here and when we come back we'll dive into philip's current job as a brewmaster at kinoshita sake brewery so please stay with us Just Egg is now the fastest growing egg brand in the United States. Bring more plant-based consumers in your doors with easy-to-use Just Egg. You can get started with a free sample. Just head to ju.st slash hrn. That's ju.st slash hrn. Made from plants, Just Egg is a better egg for you and for the planet. It's healthier with no cholesterol and less saturated fat, and it's more sustainable. Just Egg uses less water and generates fewer carbon emissions. Most importantly, it's delicious. For our listeners who operate a food service establishment, you can get a sample for free. Head to ju.st slash hrn. That's ju.st slash hrn. Just Egg makes a delicious plant-based addition to any menu. It's available as a liquid scramble. Great for omelets, frittatas, stir-fries, and French toast. There's also a frozen pre-baked folded version that's ideal for filling breakfast sandwiches or topping salads. Chef Jose Andres calls Just Egg mind-blowing and Bon Appetit says, it's so good I feel guilty eating it. Put the fastest growing egg brand on your menu. Get a free sample of Just Egg for your restaurant at ju.st slash hrn.
Welcome back. You're listening to Japanese. I'm your host, Aki Kotema, and my guest today is、um, Philip Hopper, the brewmaster and managing director of Kinoshita Shuzo, or Kinoshita Sake Brewery in Kyoto. He is the very first non Japanese brewmaster in Japan. So, after working at the Umeno Yado Brewery for 10 years,、uh, that's a long time, and at some other breweries as well, you eventually joined Kinoshita Sake Brewery in Kyoto.、Um, Where you work as a brewmaster now. So,、um, by the way,、uh, our listeners may be familiar with the、uh, Tamagawa brand, which is、uh, Kinoshita Saki Brewery's flagship brand. Delicious, delicious Saki. So, what is the history of a、uh, Kinoshita Saki Brewery? Well, the, the Kinoshita Brewery is, is owned by the Kinoshita family,、um, and、uh, they, they've been in the same place in、uh, a little corner of Kyoto Prefecture, not the Not Kyoto City, where everyone knows all the temples and gardens, but way up on the Japan Sea coast.、Um, and so this family has been there for 11 generations and they've been making sake in the same place、um, there for、uh, seven of those generations.、Um, and so、mm. the brewery has been going for、um, almost 180 years and we still have some of the original buildings, which is uh, uh, quite important、uh, to some of, of what we do in our, in our brewing work as well. Wow, that's amazing. And uh, so, um, so, you joined Kinoshita Brewery as brewmaster in 2007. So,、yes. how, did you, yeah, that, <clears throat> sorry, how did you become the brewmaster at Kinoshita Brewery? Because it must have been like an earthquake for the industry <laughs> to have a non Japanese person at such a well established brewery. But at the brewery I worked before, I was in a, an Osaka brewery.、Um, and while I was there, I was promoted to master brewer. So I worked、uh, three seasons, I think, as a master brewer in this other brewery.、Um, and、uh, when, when I、um, finished working there,、um, I was、uh, introduced to this、uh, brewery, the, the owner of the brewery, by a mutual acquaintance. Um, and the, the brewery, they just lost their previous master brewer, who, an amazing man who he, he worked、um, at the one brewery from the time he started as a brewer when he was 16 until he passed away in his late 60s、um, from, from cancer, unfortunately,、um, the year before I joined. And the, the owner was thinking about maybe closing the brewery because things in the sake industry here have been hard for so long. And he never worked with another master brewer. Um, and they, he, he mentioned this to this、uh, mutual acquaintance who, who said,、oh, This person I'd really like you to meet. And, and so he introduced me.、Um, and so I think、uh, the owner sort of really felt like he had his back to the wall. And he, he, he tried lots of、um, stuff on his watch, but couldn't really、um, see any, any way further doing business as usual. So、um, when he talked to me and、um, Thought it would be interesting to, to have me make sake for him. I think one of the things that they had in mind was that, that business as usual was no longer working as a strategy.、Um, and、uh, as, as you say, I mean, obviously, from, from my point of view, I'm, I'm just a brewer, but from everyone else's point of view, I'm this、um, weird foreigner doing this、um, very Japanese thing. So、um, I think it was probably、uh, quite a, a A leap of courage for him to, to employ a,、um, a non Japanese to do the brewing for his, his, his brewery.、Um, but I think it was you know, part of his, his, his、uh, analysis that, that things had gone as far as they could doing what he'd been doing before, and, and that trying radical new things was、uh, really the only sensible way forward. 
Mm, right. So, so do you think your style back then was pretty kind of traditional way, so that people are convinced that you can carry the future of the brewery? Well, I mean, I'd worked already as a master brewer for um, for three years, um, and I'd already been working as a, a professional brewer for about fifteen or sixteen years by that stage. So. Um, and the the Brewers Guild that I belong to also has a, a very um, uh, strict qualification um, for for master brewers. And uh, my my previous um, boss he 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 said that I should take this um, exam. So I took the exam. So I also have a piece of paper um, to say that I'm qualified as a master brewer. So you know there were, there were, there, were, there was good reason to think that uh, I would I would be technically competent enough to do what was needed to do uh, and at, at that stage I mean the, we we didn't really know what direction the brewery would be going in um the the owner was was, was thinking you know that that there were existing products with existing customers and he said we'll 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 keep those as they are because we already have customers for these but but as far as any everything else goes, you can do absolutely whatever you like, um, and just like bring in lots of new ideas because that's what we need. Mm. So, so we started with a whole bunch of um, new ideas, um, and uh, by and large, I think I mean we 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 do brew some quite conventional sake, but the things that have done better have tended to be less conventional. Right. Well. Um, before we get into that, <laughs> your unique sake, um, yeah, I understand that you passed uh, Nambutoji um, Shikaku Senkoshiken, which is, uh, you know, very specific uh, yeah, exam yeah, and to right. be qualified as respected um, sake brewer. So, yeah, this is a great achievement and congratulations. Thank you. Um, and then, uh, so I didn't know that, uh, I, I understand you worked at Diamond Shuzo, right? Before yeah, you joined Osaka, the Kinoshita. Yeah. Right. Well, actually, uh, on episode 214, Marcus Consolini, now oh, it's right. the CEO mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. Diamond Brewery. Um, so before you were, you know, Marcus joined uh, Diamond Brewery before you. Uh, no, the other way around. You I, left, I, right? I, I was right. there before him, yeah. Right. So they kind of crossed. But uh, yeah, so I didn't know that you were already the master brewer at the Diamond Sake Brewery, which is. Yeah. Obviously, very forward-minded Sake Brewery. Yeah, the thing at Diamond Sun's place was I joined as a, a member of the brewing staff and the, the the master brewer at the time moved on and so I kind of um, stepped in to fill that gap. Mm, right. Wow. So I think that the sake industry is very traditional, but the things started to happen that you are in the middle of that kind of like typhoon started to stir the whole industry. So that's amazing. Uh, with that, you probably, the industry could look a little differently right now. Um, okay, so uh, so let's go back to uh, discuss. What, what types of sake do you make? You, you say like, you know, from the ranging from traditional to something very innovative so can you just tell us what kind of sake you make well you know it's, it's always a sort of difficult question to answer because like people say what kind of sake is tamagawa we make a really wide range of um of different products at our brewery um one thing that we don't do is is that the in the last sort of 20 years or so um very fruity flowery sweeter sakes have become enormously popular 
and a lot of the most famous sort of uh, brands of the last 20 years or so have been made with um, the, the the new generation of yeast that make that style of brewing possible. Um, and we don't do that kind of brewing. So our, our, we, we don't really have any very um, fruity, flowery kind of sakes. Um, mm. One thing that we do do that is um, very unusual in the industry is, is that um, we, we make our, about 40% of all our, of our sake without adding pure yeast cultures with just uh, ambient yeast living in the brewery, uh, which um, when, when our brewery was started um, uh, almost 200 years ago, that was, was the way all sake was made. Um, but now there are only a handful of breweries in Japan making any sake in that style. Um, and that that now makes accounts for about forty percent of all our all our production. It, it's a, it you're not really supposed to do it. It's it's supposed to be dangerous and unreliable, um, and so you're taught that um, it's not something that you really should do. But um, we we've been doing it um, um, happily and successfully for uh, fourteen years at the brewery now, and we we've never had a um, a batch go wrong on us. So we're fortunate that the 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 yeast living in our old old buildings um, is is a, a a good collection of yeast or yeast. We're not really sure. There's a whole bunch of different things working there, probably. Mm. Um, and and also, you know, gives really strong, lively fermentation and and really long lasting sake, which I think is is really um, uh, uh, a characteristic of all of our sake. And I think a lot of times when people start to learn about sake, they're told that that sake is very delicate. Um, and that you have to keep it in the fridge um, and you have to drink it quickly after you open the bottle. And, and those things just aren't true for Tamagawa sake, which is, um, as far as we can tell, lasts pretty much forever. Um, and you can you can open a bottle and, and drink half of it and have it kicking around your kitchen at room temperature um, and come back to it the next year and it will still be good to drink. So it's um, really durable, low-maintenance sake. Mm, wow, that's interesting. Um Yes. So you said, you know, the wild yeast from your own Kura, yes. the brewery, yeah. were 200 years old. And I, I, I know how hard it is because I happened to work at the winery one time and uh, the winemaker, mm -hmm. she was French and she used uh, wild yeast. Right. And then was, instead of the throwing in, uh, you know, easy to inoculate um, yeah. commercial yeast, it's like she was freaking out, <laughs> literally like, oh, it's not starting. I don't know when it's going to start. So it's very challenging. And uh you can't rest until actually things that's going. So it must yeah. be very challenging, but I think... It's way more the, complicated, yeah. Right. And then I know I heard a couple of people told me about the style of Yosake and it's bold and, uh, you know, kind of like stable, mm -hmm. robust flavor. That, do you think that comes from the wild yeast? Um, well, it, it, I think I think it's easy to brew in 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 those styles using the wild yeast. But I mean, even with even with the wild yeast sake, we call it spontaneous fermentation. Um, and within that series, I mean, we have very big, um, strongly flavored sakes, but we also have um, uh, lighter things that we brew within those styles. We have like really sweet sake that we brew within in that style, really dry sake. So you can really do. Um, pretty much, you you want anything you want to do with um, with with those yeasts, um, mm. but I, I think the people who like our sake tend to like um, like a very strong umami flavour in their sake, and uh, 
we we sell a lot of sake that in its undiluted state, which is called Genshu, which gives you again an extra sort of um, burst of, of umami flavor from the the, the high level of, of alcohol. Um, mm. Um, so right. e- even even the, the sakes that we make in the conventional way, where we use um, cultivated yeast, um, we we tend to have sake with a a, a very pronounced uh, umami profile and lots of acids and amino acids. So they're big, really big meaty sakes, which are are great for food and and great for drinking at different temperatures. Mm. I uh, a while ago I trusted I tasted your red label uh, mm-hmm. Yamaha Genshu. <laughs> which is Yamaha is old style, more kind yeah. of like a you know very personal, impossibly funkier way to make sake, and also Genshu is um, undiluted. So it's like yeah. to me, it was like you said, it's umami and it's almost as weighty as food I had together. So yeah. I, yeah. it was so memorable, and I loved the sake. Thank you, thank um, you. We we sell a lot of that sake in in the USA as well. Um, it's it's a it's a very extreme sake, but it's it's the the most popular of all the things that we make. And the most extreme sake is the most popular. So mm. you, you can draw your own conclusions about what Tamagawa fans like from that. Right. Um, then you mentioned earlier that you know the whole world started to be more towards uh, floral, like <laughs> a sweeter sake, and yeah. I think it's uh, it's partly it's good because it's more of a closer to the style of wine people enjoy globally. And also the Japanese people st- started to be drinking less sake, especially the younger generation. So uh, it, it's a good way to keep the pie bigger than that could have been. But the, the style of sake, like drier, kind of like more umami uh, forward sake. So is that something that you try to maintain the style of uh, Kinoshita brewery or just do think it's a, there's a value in that kind of style of sake well i mean i think it kind of it kind of developed itself because when when, when i started working at, at the kinoshita brewery we we were gonna we started with a whole bunch of different new ideas um and and the uh, as i've already mentioned the you 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 were kind enough to to mention the the red label yamaha um which is the the sort of uh i suppose the the most prominent of all the products that we make with this with these wild yeasts, um, but it's also one of our most successful products, uh, and and it's a, a very very extreme sake, um, and so I'm, I'm kind of quite I'm quite flexible. I, I I enjoy all kinds of sake, but um, the 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 things that we made that people really enjoyed the most seem to seem to have been the the more extreme things. Um, and so we have a few we have a few quieter products that we make, and people are often quite surprised when they come across them because um, they think that tamagar is all these like big, bold, massive Genshu sakes, and it's not all that we do. But um, there's no doubt that a lot of people really associate that with what we do. Mm, right, it's like a great actor, <laughs> and the good actors change personality depending on how what kind of character they act on. So <laughs> we like that. Um, and also I think uh, I read on your website, which I haven't tasted yet, but Tamaga Junmai Ginjo Icebreaker, yeah. uh, which is, it's a rock de umai. <laughs> That's one of the tagline yes. on the website. It's like yes. great, yeah. tastes great on the rocks. So what kind of um, and sake is that? I've never imagined that could be possible for sake to be drunk on the rocks. Well, we, um, we, 
we've we've had that product going for about um, 13, 14 years now. Um, and I mean, the, the basic idea behind it is, is that um, uh, we're coming into the, the rainy season in Japan now, whereas, you know, it's really hot and humid all the time. Um, and if you, if you drink um, a well-made sake over ice, um, it's just really nice and refreshing at this like hot, sweaty time of year. So we decided to make a, a, a summer product um, in that kind of style. And it doesn't work with, with uh, any sake. I mean, a lot of sake, if you put it over ice, as you imagine, it goes all sort of um, wishy-washy and watery pretty quickly. Um, but, but our sake doesn't. It, it, when you put ice in it, it unlocks a whole bunch of different flavors. Um, and you also get this like lovely um, cool air coming off the surface of the sake. And then as the, the ice melts, the temperature changes and the level of alcohol changes. So you get this like cascade of like of changing flavors and aromas in the glass. And it's like so much fun to drink. So we, we, we got a certain amount of criticism when we started doing it because there are a whole bunch of um, purists out there who, who, who were annoyed with me because apparently you're not really supposed to drink sake over ice. Um, but but we liked it, and there's no doubt a, lo- a whole bunch of uh, customers in Japan and overseas have really, really liked that. So that's been a very uh, successful product for us, which has been mm. kind of really important in some of the things that we wanted to do later on. Hey. Well, is it available in the U.S.? Yeah, yeah it's, 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 uh, it's already on the way. It should be uh, arriving for sale any day now. It's a, it's a summer sack. It's a summer sake. We we ship it about now when the when the rainy season starts in Japan, um, mm. and uh, uh, we we ship it through the the, the summer months, and uh, then then it goes away for another year until the following May. Hey, well, just in time. Next week is uh, the Memorial Day, so I can definitely use that. What about yeah, well, New York I'm, City? I'm not I'm not sure if it's landed or not, but it, it's on the way certainly. Okay, I'll look into it, and uh, so. Uh, so in general, do you call yourself sake as no non-style, kind of like a flexible as it's needed? Because I think because of a specific history of your brewery and also maybe terroir, I'm just curious how those elements affect uh, you know how you think about making well, sake. I, I think if you if you if you look at the the map of Japan and and how how the breakdown of of sake styles and directions is um obviously you you start talking about these these sort of um, generalizations and then you can spend the rest of your life talking about exceptions but by and large if if you look at it if you look at the sake that's made in the cold bits of Japan up north um they they tend to be if um lighter flavored and lower in acidity um, and then if you come further down our end of Japan, where, you know, the summers are hotter um, and the winters aren't so cold, um, then, then you tend to get much bigger um, rice-driven, umami-flavored kinds of sakes. And, and so we are, we are very much, um, in, in that sense, we're a, a, a typical Western Japan sake that is, is very, very rice-flavored and very, very earthy and very rich-flavored. Um, mm. and, and you know those 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 broader regional um, directions in sake. I mean, they I think they're very related to climate because if you ferment at a lower temperature, um, then you get lower acidity, lower acid sake, which is exactly what you see in uh, sake coming from colder regions. And if you have exactly the same sake and then age it at a, a high temperature and a low temperature. If you age it at higher temperatures, you get more color in the sake. You get more umami flavor. 
Um, and again, that's exactly the kind of direction that you see in in sort of classical Western Japan style sake, and very much ours is very much in that mold. So mm. you know, it, it is it is partly down to that that kind of um, really nice organic um, climactic thing, which is is a, a really uh, broad background to where sake styles come from. Mm, right. Yeah, it's we shouldn't forget that sake is very, uh, very uh, terroir driven, very regional, highly microclimate, yes, um, yes. right? Uh, influenced uh, beverage, very precious. And uh, so you touched on already aging sake. Yes. Now, so I'm just curious because you are now being known for making a lot of great aged sake. So. Um, which is very unusual compared to the mass market, like the majority yeah. of the market. So uh, what is aged sake and uh, why do you produce it? Um, well, we, we, we make it because we think it tastes better. Um, and uh, there, there, has, there was, always was aged sake in Japan, but um, they, kind of, um, they kind of lost it for, for about a century or so. Um, but my the first master brewer I ever worked for, his sake was was like spectacular when you aged it, um, and even this is about almost thirty years ago now. And there was there was in in those days it was even more unusual. But there was lots and lots of aged sake kicking around that brewery, the three year old stuff and five year old stuff and seven year old stuff. Um, mm. And I mean, like a lot of other people, when I first started drinking sake, I was taught that um, the younger the better. Um, but when when I carried on drinking i found that a lot of the sake that i really thought was best to drink was not not the not the young stuff but the uh the stuff that had been aged for a while um and so when when i started at this brewery i mean i already knew this to be true of the sake that i made um and the 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 owner also became pretty hooked on on the old stuff after a, a few years of of drinking it together um, and so, so you know, the, we we decided uh, quite a while ago now. I mean, we 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 started sh- selling uh, three-year-old aged sake more than ten years ago now, um, wow. and we've been we've been saving sake ever since. So you know, we've got a whole bunch of different things kicking around in our in our warehouses, getting better. Um, right. and, well, and we we ship. Um, we have of, of the the pasteurized products that we ship year round now. We have about seven or eight product lines which we don't ship until they're, they're they've been um, aged for three or four years um, and the bulk of them are aged at are totally at room temperature as well so they're they're also um, very uh, ecologically sound because we we don't spend a, a lot of money on electricity to keep the things cool they're they're perfectly happy at room temperature Mm, right. So, uh, for legally speaking, uh, for tax le- legislation, I think it's the age sake is three years old or longer. Yeah, right? it's it's, uh, it's not it's not actually a legal definition, but I mean, there's a long-standing um, convention in in the in the industry that if you if you want to talk about long-term aging, that you're talking um, about at least at least three years. Mm, right. So, um, when you drink. Aged sake. How do you drink it? It's uh, always with savory food, or how do you? Um... In in terms of serving temperature, it's actually very versatile. And I find I find the the um, the modern sakes, the these very flowery, fruity ones. Um, you have to drink them cold, pretty much. I think very few of them work well at room temperature or above. Um, and we we make a, lo- a lot of our pasteurized sake. Um, in when it when it's young it, it doesn't drink very well cold but 
if you age sake for a long time, I, it, it, it's very um, hard to predict what temperature will be good. You can drink over a really wide range of temperatures with a lot of them. Um, and in terms of food pairings, um, they they um, they are very good with um, savory foods, with like uh, like uh, some Western foods that Jap- Japanese sake can struggle with sometimes, like blue cheese and stuff. Um, those those blue cheese is excellent with um, a sake. Although um, a sake comes in you know lots of different shapes and varieties as well, so um, it it really does depend on the specific sake. But they're they're really interesting food sakes. Um, you you get you get a whole bunch of um, flavors and aromas unlocking that you only get with um, time. That it's it's impossible to get in younger sakes. Um, mm. And so so each bottle of aged sake is kind of um, a, a journey in itself. And there's, there was a there was a time when when I was taught and I believed in this idea that that um, of of sake coming to a peak and that you needed to drink sake at a peak, and we we don't think that with tamagawa sake we we don't actually find it goes downhill at all. So um, we we think of aging more as kind of an, an ongoing journey with with each bottle until you finish the the final final drop at the bottom. Mm. So what happens in the bottle because. You know, it's pasteurized, so there's no active uh, fermentation going anymore. No. So the existing amino acid breaks down more, and then more umami comes out. That's why you can yep. pair something strong like blue cheese. Right. You get a you get a shift in the umami profile. You you get you get a lot of smoky flavors coming out. Um, when it when it, in in younger sake, it, it it often comes as kind of nutty flavors and woody flavor so wine people when they when they drink age when they drink our sake they often say these these um aromatics they, these must come from the wood right um but we don't age sake in wood so although all those um aromatics which which feel like they should come from oak or wood to to wine people um they all come from the sake itself um mm. and so you get all these like smoky flavors emerging you get big changes in color it so sake starts off a very pale yellowy green color and it, it gets um over time it gets like browner we, we have a, a sake made from a 300 year old recipe um and if you age that for 15 years it's basically soy sauce color um so wow. um as, as well as aromatics uh and and flavors you also get this like huge range of colors with aged sake which is uh, uh also really for us so much part of the fun mm, wow <laughs> you really got me really interested in each sake. Uh, I really have to look into your website. Um, okay, and then, um, well, one question about, you know, there, Japanese sake is increasingly um, popular outside of Japan. And, yes. um, and we started to see more sake made outside of Japan. So, I mean, including the U.S. So what do you think of the sake made outside Japan? Well, obviously, I in Although there have been sake breweries outside Japan for a long time, I think the the, brewer, the new breweries that we've seen started in the last um, ten or fifteen years or so, the the smaller breweries, and I think a lot of those people are um, very strongly influenced by um, uh, beer microbreweries and by that whole um, uh, the culture of uh, craft beer. I think, um, and so I think you you see a lot of those influences there, and of course in in every country the the um, the laws regarding um, brewing alcoholic production are, are different. So you're, you're technically allowed to do things in other countries that you wouldn't be allowed to do in Japan and vice versa. So 
Um, there are sort of technical reasons why why you can't get the same things. Um, a, a lot of breweries overseas, because they come from craft beer backgrounds, I think they they are interested in 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 doing things that probably would seem very strange in a Japanese context. Um, mm. And and one one thing I I find uh, I'm always impressed by when I when I talk to these guys overseas is is that um, the enormous technical problems, the challenges that they have to to overcome to do the most basic things in brewing. I mean, um, if, as a, a sake brewer in Japan, I mean, the, in, in terms of the equipment you use and, and sort of basic technical solutions, the know-how is there. Um, and it, it's, it's very easy to, for, to find equipment for steaming rice or, or pressing sake or whatever. But all, these are really, really difficult problems uh, for overseas breweries. So they have to come overcome all these enormous uh, technical challenges to sort of get to the, the starting level. So um, I have a great respect for all their efforts in this regard. Mm, right. I've seen many <laughs> customized equipments made out of uh, beer brewery equipment yeah, or wine, yeah. wine equipment. Yeah, they're genius. Um, okay. And uh, so you are also the author of Sake Guidebooks and act as an educator when you go outside yes. of Japan. So how do you predict the future of Japanese sake industry? Well, I, mean, I, th- I think um, I mean, you've already mentioned all these overseas breweries, and I mean, this this is obviously a, a, um, there's a, there's a I, I think uh, if you think of the way that the the craft beer industry has like really changed the face of of that market, um, and and of the, the sort of really um, striking changes um, in the wine market that have happened in the last fifteen or twenty years because of the conversation about natural wine and so on. Um, I, I think we're going to see um, part, partly because of those, those movements overseas and partly because um, the, the, the things have been so hard for so long in the Japanese sake industry that, that people are looking for new ways forward. But I think those ideas about um, craft beer and, and natural wine, I think, I think we will see um, more of those ideas probably um, coming to the fore, the fore in uh, the sake industry. But the mm-hmm. sake obviously has its own own history and its own own sort of uh, box of uh, magic techniques, which not all of which translate well into a a wine or or beer terms. And so, um, I think there's a sort of um, very strong, stable core of of culture and of philosophy in in Japanese sake brewing. And not all of that will, works very 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 well if you try and sort of um, bring craft beers ideas to it or natural wine ideas to it. Um, but I think there's no doubt that there are a lot of uh, uh, brewery people, a lot of um, producers and a lot of customers are really interested in those things. So I think we will still see more new things coming in from that direction. And I think mm. on, on another another trend that you can see is, is that there, there is a kind of, uh, um, partly which does partly link in with those ideas as well, but I think there's a, an increased interest within the industry and from consumers um, about uh, sort of time-consuming traditional methods, which is essentially what what we do so much of with spontaneous spontaneous fermentation, um, and Yamaha mm. and Kimoto, these old methods which are have a long history and and are technically much more demanding. Um, and so we 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 started um, doing our spontaneous fermentation project um, about fifteen years ago now. Um, and I hadn't really anticipated the the interest I would get from wine people because um, what we're doing is 
fits absolutely perfectly with with all the conversations that, that people are interested in natural wine. Um, it's it's exactly the kind of thing that they are aiming to do. We've we've been doing really without thinking about it for the last uh, fifteen years now. Mm, right. I think uh, the objective view to tradition, which the Japanese traditional industry tend to lack, not just sake industry, uh, is being broken by someone, you know, analytical like you and other people who look at traditional um, elements like koji. Koji is now being, a, you know, very getting attention by culinary world to fermentation like beer makers or any people. So uh, like, yeah, I think hopefully, like you said, uh, the sake industry's secrets is going to be more revealed and shared, and then it is going to eventually contribute to uh, sake industry um, prosperity for the near future, I hope. Um, so, uh, so what are you, your plans for the future? Are you planning to create new sake or could be anything? What are your plans? Well, I mean, as a, as a, as a company, our, our, our great project now is, is to age more and more sake and to bring aged sake more and more into the center of what we do. So um, that, that, that's the ongoing project. And the, 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 the nice thing about doing that is, is that you don't have to come up with new product ideas because every year you've got new vintages coming online. So there's, it's, it's, uh, it's always self-renewing. So there's, it's, there's never any lack of uh, interesting new things coming online when you do this. Mm. Um, so that professionally, I mean, that's, that, that is the big thing. Um, you mentioned before that I've written a couple of books before in English, and it's a long, long time since I've actually managed to um, write a, um, a book on English in sake, and a lot of a lot of the things um, I think now um, are completely the opposite of what I thought when I was um, first taught about sake. So I've been thinking for a while. It's time for me to to put those thoughts um, um, in print. Um, so I've been kind of um, working on that manuscript um, in the in the extra hours I have free because of the pandemic. Uh, and also people for years have been after me to write a um a book in Japanese on sake so i've got those i've got these two manuscripts sort of on the go simultaneously now mm, um, do you know when about when it's going to come out no no i have no idea but um uh um hope, hopefully hopefully in a, in a couple of years they'll both be out okay so then uh, when did they come out you i hope you can uh, return to japanese and we can discuss your new books yes yeah, certainly Right. And uh, so um, this is a um, for the question for listeners who are not really into sake yet, but what yeah. is special about Japanese sake compared to other types of beverages to you personally? Well, and I think the, 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 the two great things about sake, um, one, one link is very familiar to wine drinkers. Sake is like brilliant with food. Um, and uh, I mean, my work, brings me into contact with a lot of sommeliers overseas. Uh, um, and a lot of wine people have like um, really become very interested in sake in recent years. And one of the reasons is, is that it's so good with food. Um, and that you have a, in the wine world, you have a whole career, you have a whole profession of sommeliers whose job is to match wine with food. And that is because I think it's pretty difficult to do. Um, if, if you if you know the the food and the wine, then it can work. If you if you if you don't, then it, you can get some like real train wrecks with um, wine and food, and that really rarely happens with sake, if ever. I think. 
Mm. Um, and the, the the other thing, which is like um, I think really unique to sake, is is that you get to drink it at so many different temperatures. So you already mentioned our product, which we we uh, suggest drinking on ice. Um, but that same product also has a huge following of people who like to drink it really, really hot. Um, and so, you know, you, you can drink sake really cold, you can drink it at room temperature, you can drink it warm, you can drink it really, really hot. Um, and it does, it really becomes a different drink at different temperatures. And I think that is such a, a key part of the, the fun in drinking sake. And I mean, I mm. love drinking wine and beer too, but when I, when I, if I keep on drinking them after a while, I get bored because I can't play with temperature with them in the same way that I'm used to doing with sake. Right. Well, the other day I compared uh, the same sake side by side with the uh, regular temperature chilled and also slightly warm, and they have completely different They're flavor totally profiles. Different things. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's so much fun. Right. Okay. So, um, so we need to wrap up because it's getting late for your time, and also, <laughs> so, uh, so where can we find your updates online and social media? Well, you can't because I don't do anything like that. So, so <laughs> you'll, you'll just have to um, catch me when I go to America somewhere or um, wait for a book or, or the, the, all these all these online events which have been happening. People keep dragging me into those. So you can catch me online in, in, in those events maybe if you keep your head down. But I, I'm, I'm okay. resolutely analog. Mm. And your website, and where can we find your sake online? The Kinoshita Breweries website? Yeah, so the, we have we have a, a, a website for the, the Kinoshita Brewery, Tamagawa Sake. Uh, and I, I spent a, a long, hard uh, time a few years ago turning it all into English. So there's an English version as well. Um, and if you're in the, the USA, you can find uh, a whole bunch of our sake there. We, we work in the USA and also in the UK, in fact, with uh, World Sake Imports, who do an excellent job of uh, explaining our funny sake to, to people overseas. So you look up with the world sake imports people and they'll be able to hook you up with uh, Tamagawa sake. Mm, okay. So the world sake import.com. That's right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. right. Okay. And also you can Google Kinoshita Brewery and also yes. Tamagawa. Your website is amazing. So, thank yeah. You, so, uh, okay. So thank you so much for joining us today, Philip. And I hope to see you. Um, when your book comes out. Yes, thank you. And when, when the pandemic is calmed down in both places, then we'll be able to start going backwards and forwards and doing fun stuff again. Right, and hopefully I'll see you in New York too. Okay, so, thank you. Thank you. So listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japaneeds at heritageradionetwork.org or akikogatema.com. Japanese is a weekly program and always available at heritageradionetwork.org as well as on iTunes, Stitch, and Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer today is Matt Patterson, and thank you for listening. I will see you next week. Japanese is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. 
Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.